This is The Lack with Nina Power and Benjamin Studebaker. Today we're doing a Danish film called Benken. I'll kick us off. Benken came out in 2000. It's about a man named Kaj who spends his days drinking on a bench. Why does Kaj do this? We learn that Kaj had a job for 25 years, so clearly there was once a time when he could hold one down. We also learn that Kaj abandoned his family roughly 19 years before the start of the film. So Kaj was in such a bad state that he ran away from his family, but he was nonetheless able to keep working for more than a decade after that. Then, when he stopped working, he went on government benefits. The Danish state demands he participate in a back-to-work scheme as a condition of receiving his benefits, but he drinks on the job and vandalizes someone's yard to get himself fired. So now he's broke and he needs money for booze. To make matters worse, he's dragged his best friend, Stig, into this mess with him. And Stig is worried because his girl will be upset if he doesn't come up with some cash. A mother and daughter come into town. Kaj recognizes the mother because she is the daughter he abandoned long ago. If that's not a contrived plot point, I don't know what is. Initially, Kaj avoids the daughter out of shame, but it turns out she's in town because she's fleeing an abusive partner. Her new roommate is an aloof academic who has no idea what's going on. She needs someone to watch her kid while she goes to work. She doesn't recognize Kaj as her father, and it doesn't seem to bother her that he reeks of alcohol. So she hires Kaj and Stig as unlicensed child minders. Kaj's initial reluctance to get involved evaporates conveniently quickly. Now that he has a role in his daughter's life, he feels motivated to try to drink less. But when he tells his daughter who he is by showing her pictures of herself, she gets angry and refuses to have anything to do with him. So Kaj steals a bunch of hard liquor and starts trying to drink himself to death. He berates all of his friends around town, isolating himself from everyone, including Stig. The aloof academic roommate confesses his love for the daughter and tries to force her to marry him. When she refuses, he has a mental breakdown and throws her out of the house. She tries to go back to her abusive partner, but, surprise, surprise, he beats her again. She's hospitalized and needs someone to watch her kid, so she calls Kaj. Kaj has had an unbelievably vast amount of alcohol, but somehow he walks to the hospital and takes the kid. No one at the hospital notices how drunk he is. No one in this movie ever seems to realize how drunk he is, and the fact that he's drunk rarely matters. The abusive partner doesn't know who Kaj is, and when he discovers that Kaj has his kid, he calls the police and labels Kaj a kidnapper. So Kaj goes on the run with the kid, taking him on a train to get away from the heat. In a train station, Kaj goes in search of booze, leaving the kid alone. The kid wanders off, and because nobody has a cell phone in Denmark in the year 2000, they become separated. Eventually, they bump into each other, Kaj gives the kid a toy, and this filler scene is promptly forgotten by both. Eventually, Kaj finds that the only remaining safe place he can go is Stig's place. Stig demands an apology and a thank you, but once he receives these things, he shields Kaj from the law. Eventually, the daughter gets out of the hospital. She tells the police her partner is is an abuser and that Kaj is the grandfather. When she arrives at Stig's place to pick up her kid, Kaj promptly dies of alcoholism so that the movie can end in the cheesiest possible way. But let's put aside the obviously weak plotting. This film is about a woman who needs a man. There's a man with lots of money who beats her. There's an academic writing a thesis on someone who wrote about 
Kierkegaard, who is too self-involved to think for a minute about her interests or those of her son. There's her own absentee father, who is an impoverished drunk. And yet the film suggests that she's better off relying on him than on these educated professional men. And even more reliable than him is his working class friend, Stig. Stig is not very bright. Indeed, when Kaj gets angry with him, Kaj calls Stig a dog who does whatever he's told. And yet, in the moment of crisis, Stig is the one who is able and willing to open his home to the boy. So, you could read the film as an endorsement of the capacities of the working class man vis-a-vis his professional class counterparts. But there's a hole in this reading, that hole being that Kaj is working class and yet he abandoned his family. Why is Kaj more reliable now than he was 20 years ago? What has changed in Kaj's life that allows for this? I don't think the film has a good answer to this question. Kaj had the opportunity to be inspired by fatherhood 20 years ago, and that role wasn't enough to cause him to rise to the occasion then. If the film does have an answer, it comes in the form of its title. Benken is the Danish word for bench, and the fact that Kaj is part of a community of alcoholics who drink near a bench gives him a social circle to rely on. But this answer doesn't really work either. The bench gang doesn't stop Kaj from sabotaging his back-to-work scheme. They don't stop him from robbing the liquor store. They don't visit him when he's trying to drink himself to death. They don't really offer anything like a functional community setting. Indeed, while this film is set in Denmark, it depicts levels of social atomization we usually like to think only afflict English-speaking societies. Yes, the bench gang is willing to stop people from kicking Kaj in the stomach in front of them, but they aren't really willing to go out of their way to help him when he's not near the bench. Even Stig will only come to his aid after he gets an apology, and Kaj has to seek Stig out. The Danish state takes an entirely transactional attitude to Kaj, demanding work in return for welfare. The film easily could have been set in any British or American city. If not for the ubiquitous bicycles and the long shots, how would we even know this is Denmark? In an effort to persuade ourselves that a better society is possible with just a few light-touch social democratic reforms, we often tell each other stories about how great life is in Scandinavia. But in 2002, two years after this film came out, the Danes began trimming their social assistance programs, ostensibly to increase the incentive to work. They cut benefits by 50% for refugees and workers from outside the European Union. The top 1% share of Denmark's wealth has grown from 12% in 1984 to 21% in 2021. It's not all sunshine and benches. The film incessantly pushes for a satisfying ending. Having reconciled Kaj with his family for a moment through a grand gesture, the film quickly kills him off to protect us from having to think about what comes next for these people. It is not Kaj who drinks himself to death to avoid the reality of lack. The film itself does this through Kaj. All right, let's hear what Nina thinks. Okay, yes, very nice reading. I... um agree that there are sort of several holes in this film um i think i'm not sure if you mentioned the fact that kai is also accused of violence by the daughter did you mention that in the hospital bed i did not. yeah because i think this is yeah i just want to pick up on something you you sort of said about this making a decision like he could have decided to be a good father 20 years ago as you say, it's not clear why he could possibly rise to the challenge, except by a sort of 
fate and necessity later on, you know, like he's sort of doing the bare minimum at a certain point to protect his grandson. It doesn't really explain why Kai or Kaj, they were pres- I think they're pronouncing it Kai in the in the Danish, um, but who knows how it's pronounced. It's certainly written Kaj. Um, so, yes, he was obviously working as a chef. He obviously became a father. The mother obviously dies at a certain point because one of the accusations of Liv, the daughter, is that she had to organise her mother's funeral at the age of 14. And despite Kai presumably knowing or being told about the death did not step up at that point either to help um, his daughter or to, you know, help bury his ex-wife. So Kai was obviously also a violent man. Um, And then the pattern is repeated in Liv's relationship with her rich husband who beats her violently and she she leaves the the plot is that she leaves because of it and then she returns and then he beats her violently again she's back in the hospital and then you have this yes emotional uh i mean not quite beating emotional derangement performed by the the philosophy (laughs) man who i wasn't really quite sure who he was was he just some sort of random housemate or was he someone that she sort of once knew i I wasn't clear about that but anyway she she ends up shacking up with this deranged kierkegaard obsessed nutter uh, which doesn't really present philosophy in a very beautiful light um either but maybe there's a clue in the fact that he's looking at secondary readings of Kierkegaard in the sense that this question of either or which is one of Kierkegaard's major texts um, presents itself in this film as the decision that people can make to be a slightly better version of themselves which I think is about all we can do Uh, many people do make this decision many people do decide to step up and become good parents Um, and nobody is perfect but it's you know there's there's very clearly a difference between being a violent alcoholic and someone saying I'm not going to drink anymore because I have these responsibilities and I'm going to try to sort my personality out Um, and he clearly didn't the the father or the grandfather in this case didn't didn't do that Um, And yes, I agree about this strangeness of watching films about social deprivation, alienation and atomization that are set in countries that we tend to fetishize as being relative utopias in the sense of of the social structure, network and so on. And, And there's something almost a little bit unconvincing, not because the film itself is perhaps unconvincing, but maybe in the way that we receive it of these depictions of um, these sort of social ills, because you sort of think unfairly, I'm sure, that, uh, well, you live in Sweden, don't be so silly, you know, <laughs> you don't have to be this miserable, everything's basically fine, what are you complaining about? But of, but of course, this doesn't uh, get to the heart of the the reality, which is the, the mystery of, of human uh, decisions, often very bad decisions uh, that human beings make and the, the misery that they in self that they inflict upon themselves in fact, you know, we could we could say 
you know, Kai wouldn't be the person that is in the film if he wasn't an alcoholic, right? What, who would this person, who would this man be if he wasn't alcoholic? Well, he would probably still be a chef. He'd probably still be married. He'd probably still have a, a relationship with his daughter uh, and so on and so forth. So um, in a way, it's it's a bit of a simple film. And I, I do agree that it doesn't quite um, succeed or it, it presents certain things. Um, but then, yes, there's a bit of convenience with the whole dying abruptly <laughs> issue rather than him having to basically confront the fact that he was also um, perhaps violent in the way that this man who he's now trying to protect his grandson from was also violent. And, and what is this, um, you know, what's the relationship between these two men if we're supposed to think that one of them is now redeemed and the other one is is bad. Um, and... Yeah, that isn't that isn't really resolved. I think this question you raised about this need for a man is an interesting one. Um, whether this woman or this kind of woman, let's say a single mother um, who is trying to to make work. There's a scene in which she's working in a restaurant and she's brought her son along because she can't find childcare or the um, her grandfather. Not that she knows it yet, has refused to to help at this point and she's working in a very upmarket restaurant and the clients are obviously somewhat appalled by the fact that there's a small child running around uh asking for his mother so she's sort of being depicted as someone who is has fallen on hard times even though when we see her going back to the violent husband it's clearly a a much richer um, environment and the child recalls well the child loves his bedroom in there you know he clearly has a nicer place um to stay uh, at least uh, materially if not uh, emotionally or physically because of the violent and abusive father um so i yes i mean i was trying to think about it almost from a benjamin point of view in terms of social roles and i think this question is is less an existential one of decisions and pathways and forks in people's lives. And rather this question is you, you often put it in terms of the, the social meaning that is attached to the roles that people have. And this is not just, of course, an economic question. Clearly this man was a very talented chef. He worked for, he mentioned some name, which presumably is a big name in Sweden, or at least, you know, is, is, is designed to sound like an important restaurant owner or, you know, chef that he worked for previously. So he was clearly talented. He was clearly hardworking. When he makes one nice dinner and he ties up the flat, it looks very nice. And, and she's, the daughter's very impressed. But there is a kind of another question, which is a deeper one about the sort of societies that we live in, which is to do with, the, let's say, the social role of the father and what it means to be a good father and what it means to be a bad father. And I think even the redemption, the fact that he protects his grandson in a very extreme and dramatic situation, of course, can't make up in any way for, for his absence as both a father and a grandfather. Um, and I think, yeah, that that's maybe what is unsatisfying in this film to some degree, even though it's otherwise perfectly enjoyable and it's an interesting depiction of um, this this part of Denmark, like the relatively a relatively poorer council estate, let's say, in Denmark with his alcoholic friend sitting on the bench. 
it's really this question of of what it would have meant, I suppose, to be a good father, which I think is not really explored. And I wonder, Benjamin, what you would might say a bit more about these sort of tensions that you've identified also in your your book um, about the sort of the clash or the the antagonism really between a kind of individualism and the various forms of alienation, atomization. And let's say the erosion of social roles like like fatherhood, you know, and I, I think of someone like my brother who really stepped up, like it really becoming a father made him a much more responsible human being, whereas previously he was t- had a tendency to, to not be particularly responsible. And I think that that sometimes happens. It doesn't always happen, though, clearly. It, becoming a father doesn't always make um, a man responsible. Um, and there are many children who grow up without fathers. And I wonder if you have a, a take on, I suppose, the, the social role dimension of fatherhood in the context of atomization and, and individual alienation. Yeah. So I think that it is very common to talk about the role of precarity in undermining families, in situations where there isn't enough resources, there's anxiety about resources, there is instability and fear about the future. In those kinds of cases, it's difficult for families to work. There's a lot of conflict about money. And in my book, I talk a little bit about that. In addition, I think there are also roles that are alienating Uh, or that invite people to become atomized that don't necessarily have the overt precarity that we might associate with working class jobs, but also have negative psychological effects insofar as they, to be successful in these roles, you have to be very individualistic. You have to be uh, on your own a lot, and it becomes disadvantaging to be tied to other people. And I think a lot of the prestige careers in our society are like this. A lot of the elite professional careers, being very individualistic is an important part of getting ahead. Not having ties to family, to a partner, to children is an advantage in these careers. And so for a certain kind of high achieving person rejecting the role of a parent or rejecting the role of a partner or spouse gives you a career advantage insofar as it allows you to throw even more energy into some kind of individualistic project. So in this film, we have the project of the dissertation. The guy who's doing the thesis on second removed from Kierkegaard is constantly talking about how he's got to work on this manuscript. He's got to work on this thesis. And it takes up so much time and energy. He can't even look after the child when the child is in the house with him during the day and he's doing nothing but but writing and and presumably looking after this child and he can't pay attention to the child. He's so inattentive and so unwilling to be attentive that she has to get a third party person to come in. And these are just drunks that she finds around town and they pay better attention to the child than the guy who's doing a PhD. So in his case as an academic, He is incentivized to refuse these ties, and yet he wants ties to somebody. He wants to be 
somebody's partner, but he's not prepared to make any of the sacrifices that are involved. And as he's throwing all of her stuff out of the house, he talks about how she ruined his sleep schedule that is so necessary to his work by you know, dictating you know, when he goes to sleep. Then you've got you know, the entrepreneurial person, someone who runs a restaurant, someone who uh, operates a small business. That's another kind of person who gains significant economic advantages by over-focusing on their career. And there is a, a type of Hollywood movie that is very standard. And here I'm thinking of, of say, Nine Lives uh, with Kevin Spacey and Christopher Walken, a movie about somebody, somebody, usually a guy who cares too much about his high-paying, high-status job and doesn't pay attention to his family. And so gradually the family becomes alienated from him. A lot of Kevin Spacey films are like mm -hmm. this. American Beauty is the classic example of that kind of film. This is something that clearly happens in a lot of high-status professional roles where there's a strong incentive to prioritize the career and while people in these roles will rationalize this as I'm prioritizing the career so that I can provide better for the family, the consequences of that level of prioritization of career have corrosive effects on the family that are inevitably felt by everybody. So I think that that side of capitalism, capitalism doesn't just generate precarious roles or low paying roles or roles where it's difficult to afford your rent or your mortgage. It also produces roles that cause you to have a lack of energy or time available for family that make it difficult to manage all of the different roles that are expected of an adult human being in the 21st century and that lead to some kind of breakdown, whether that's a divorce, philandering, or it's alcoholism or drug use or just constant fighting and violence. These are all different symptoms of the same problem. So just because someone has managed to get money in this system doesn't mean that they have been saved from the consequences of it, which are born somewhere else in life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think alongside that, if you have a kind of moral system, which only has a recognition for material <laughs> values and has you know, eroded, well, no, it's not even a moral system. I mean, it's just a kind of material and economic system, but it's kind of eroded, let's say, like the social expectation or even like social shaming, right? So the idea that if you lived in a community, for better or worse, that had strong social um, edicts against, let's say, um, I don't know, beating your child or cheating on your wife or something like that, then you would have a very different kind of environment, which might prevent people from engaging in forms of selfish or individualistic behavior. But as it is, we have a system that I suppose seems or pretends to understand that so-called stress or whatever um, brought on by a job necessitates forms of release. And I think this entire model of stress and release or whatever you want to say, um, work and reward, um, is itself, uh, to be, to be questioned, <laughs> uh, in depth. Um, not least because of, of course, as you say, these, the, the rewards for, for becoming a selfish person or an individual, more and more of an individual and not spending time with your family and so on are so great within this system. And indeed, it's the only way you can kind of succeed. And, and even if you're not particularly bothered about succeeding, that there is a kind of tendency 
in lots of jobs to work harder and harder and harder in them. You know, it's not even that yeah, people yeah, are they, getting somewhere high. They get more competitive. Right. They, they, all of these careers are getting more and more competitive. So whereas previously you could do all right if you had a work-life balance, as they used to call it, or a family career balance. Increasingly, now it's not just that uh, it, neglecting your family gives you an advantage. Neglecting your family becomes necessary even to get going at all. And so there's a, a foreclosing of the possibility of having it all, not just for women who are trying to be both mothers and career people, but also for men. And I think that is something that this film gets across very well, mm -hmm. that the career fatherhood question is just as severe for men uh, as it is for women. It's not possible for men to have it all any more than it's possible for women to have it all. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's, that is an interesting point. And I, I, I think the film is very well cast, actually. I think the man who plays the, the kind of alcoholic guy does have a sort of um, worn dignity about him. Like, and when he smartens up, you can see him in a role as a professional and just as you can see him in, in when he's more dilapidated. And in that sense, it's very, it's, I think it's a very well acted um, film. It's very convincing. Yes, that's a strength of it. The acting is really good. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you, you know, all of the characters, I think, are very convincing. Um, yeah, it, it, it's very true. And the child actor is very good as well. He, he sort of captures, I think, well, the sort of frustration and innocent confusion of that sort of age. Um, and, yeah, so I, I think that's right about the, yeah, this kind of tension. And in a way that... The decision that Kai makes is to sort of not have it all, but have nothing, you know. So it's like neither the family nor the job, which is the other option, I guess. You know, and if we're in, we're obviously in an era demographically where lots of people are quote unquote deciding not to have families one way or another um, and focus on their career. Lots of middle class people seem to be doing this. There may well, of course, as we've discussed at length on this show, also be various things going on, including economic pressures, the inability to find somewhere to live, to achieve these markers of adulthood, which are then holding people back from um, then having a family. But I think also we have to accept that some people are genuinely deciding to not have families and have careers instead, which of course then gives them quote unquote an advantage against people who do have family commitments. Um, and in a hyper competitive world of scarcity, um, you know, this, this was often given as the explanation, by the way, in the 1990s for the relative success of gay men <laughs> in uh, business and industry was, was the idea that they were, um, well, they were men, but they were also kind of unencumbered um, and therefore had more time and space and that this whole idea of like the pink pound and, you know, relative, um, you know, of course, we're talking about, let's say, upper middle class people. This is not a point about the working class at all, who you know, for whom wages have stagnated for about 200 years, <laughs> like for a very long time at this point. Um, and the relative chance of mobility is very slight. Um, so really what we have is a lot of middle-class people desperately clinging on to what they have and not wanting to sink any lower. And I think that that explains a lot of things <laughs> that are happening. Um, 
A lot of it is an extension of the honor student mentality from high school, right? If you're an honor student in high school, you decide to do all of your homework and to do everything that they want you to do. And you do all of that instead of having the fun that teenagers otherwise have, right? Instead of making the friends and having the personal connections, joining the clubs that are fun, you join the clubs that you think look good on the college application and you only do things instrumentally to get into college. Everything you do is instrumentally to get into college. Uh, Just as these people, when they're adults, everything they do is instrumentally to advance their career and achieve this hypothetical retirement that Mm. is meant to be uh, to justify retrospectively everything. Uh, If you work all, all year long in school, the summer vacation retrospectively is meant to justify everything. If you work hard all week, the weekend is retrospectively meant to justify everything. There's some kind of bacchanalia that awaits you at the right. end, I guess- but it's always much shorter than the rest of the time that you toil. Yeah. And it's never nearly as good as you think it will be. No. The weekend, the summer vacation and the retirement are all never as good as they're made out to be. And along the way, people forgo friendships, forgo all kinds of meaningful entanglements uh, so that they can get this instrumental thing. Yeah. I think that's what I was trying to say less uh, elegantly with the whole sort of reward, you know, work reward system. You know, and I think what also comes to mind is the the idea of like the marshmallow experiment, you know, where you're supposed to have these two two types of children. I'm sure you've heard about this experiment where... Uh, you will ask a child to to sort of wait 15 minutes or something before eating the marshmallow with the promise that they'll get a second marshmallow. Um, and a lot of children eat the marshmallow because it's there and there's one of them. And, and some children will wait and receive two. And it's sort of the promise of a greater happiness. I, I think the marshmallow test has been debunked. Um, <laughs> but it's an interesting metaphor nonetheless for this idea of what actually separates people also culturally and from a class point of view is something like a capacity for delayed gratification you know and I remember this being a big topic of conversation um that but to be middle class is in a sense to sign up for a whole series of delayed gratifications yeah 15 minutes becomes five days which becomes five months which becomes five years which becomes 50 years yeah Exactly. But this, I mean, one of the main problems with this, obviously, is, I mean, especially when it doesn't get realized when you no longer have a uh, an aspirational culture built on progress in the sense that everything is getting better for everyone, but that stops. So you don't have the promise, you don't have the reward. Um, but also it means that nobody is living in the present or lots of people are not living in the present <laughs> and they're doing lots of things they don't enjoy or they're doing lots of things that are potentially uh, morally suspect in order to justify, you know, uh, some sort of heaven on earth. And And when people talk about sort of uh, bringing heaven down to earth and having this secular worldview, retirement almost becomes like this place, you know, this fantasy of um, the afterlife. And it's really just as, as hedonistic a conception of life as the person who immediately has the bacchanalia when they're a teenager. Mm-hmm. It's hedonism now versus hedonism later, but there's no real alternative. <laughs> yes, I mean, it would be good to have a much more balanced attitude for everyone from the start, which is neither to work like a maniac nor to consume like a maniac. Um, 
just not to be a maniac, but apparently that's quite difficult. Um, and you, the space for that middle path is being slowly diminished. Yeah, that possibility of not just consuming all the drugs you possibly can when you're 17, uh, but also not uh, toiling away in uh, some kind of professional career for 50 years until you retire in uh, your 70s. Yeah. Increasingly, there isn't really anything in between those two options. No. And I think, you know, the, the dropout option of sort of neither work, neither career nor family does only make sense as this film maybe realizes and you pointed out the the cutting of the social benefit system and obviously there are some countries in which if you don't work and don't have a family you are sort of screwed i mean including america um and there are some countries that have some kind of safety net um and i guess there are still medium-sized institutions that exist like the church and like charities and like various NGOs and various group support groups. Um, but yeah, they, it's, it's very difficult to sustain an entire human being um, if they are unable or unwilling to, to make money um, and they don't have anyone else paying for them. Yeah, did, I don't know if you saw, there was a piece in The Atlantic a little while ago arguing that the reason that church attendance rates are falling in the United States is that people just don't have any time anymore because their careers incentivize them to spend their time in such an instrumental way that the kind of surplus time that you need to go to church and to be involved in a church community it no longer makes sense to save time or to spend time in that way for most people. Mm. And so really the, the ultimate reason that church attendance is declining is that there is this lack of surplus time. But it's, but, but, but why? I mean, you know, you had farmers in the sort of 16th century who were working like millions of hours a week and they would still go to church on Sunday and have Sunday off. Like, I don't understand why... Why? Well, some of that is that farming has a rhythm to it. It has a schedule over the course of mm. the year that does lend itself to having some time off. And there was a, a lack of alternative ways to spend that time off. Whereas now there is, uh, the schedule is year round. It doesn't have any kind of, of seasonal flow to it. It doesn't really fluctuate. And a lot of people are so dead tired because they're the whole science of management is how to get as much of people's energy as you can while they're at work. Yeah. No, right? sure. I mean, so I get that. As the science of management progresses, people will have overwhelmingly more and more of their energy depleted by work. Even if they have time when they're not at work, they won't have energy to deploy in that time. Mm. So when they aren't at work, they'll just watch television. They'll take some kind of passive entertainment that is the minimal amount of energy and effort in that remaining time. And this is why I think we have so many young people talking about how do you get optimal use out of that hour of the day when you're not at work and you still have some energy left? 
how do you use that hour in some way to better yourself so that you can eventually crawl out of the pit that you're otherwise in? Mm -hmm. And this is where all that grind set stuff on the internet comes in. As people try to find some way to squeeze something good for themselves out of that hour where they still have some energy after they get home from work. Yeah. But though, as managers get better and better and better at managing... And they do get better at managing if you take managing to be sucking all of your energy out and giving it to the company. Yeah. Vampiric. People will just not have any energy left to do really anything at all. Well, it was and when they do engage with other stuff, it will be from a, a, a place of need and a place of psychological desperation. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a therapeutic culture as well. Like you'd rather go to therapy than go to church or whatever. Your workplace might pay for you to have six weeks of therapy or something, CBT. Well, if you go to church, you have to sit in a crowd and listen to the preacher who talks to everybody and not just you. And you have to listen to somebody talk. You don't get to talk yourself. (laughs) I mean, yeah, you could go to confession if you're Catholic. But yes, there'd be a queue and you'd probably be told to do some Hail Marys and feel a bit bad. Um, Yeah, confession, you're supposed to talk about what you did wrong, whereas in the therapy (laughs) session, you can talk about all kinds of different things, and the therapist has to come up with something to do with what you say. Yeah, how other people have done you wrong. You know, I think we have like a kind of affirming. I saw a terrible stat today about how the the, the amount of people going to therapy has gone up, but the amount of sort of happiness has gone down. So the therapeutic culture does not seem to be working. (laughs) Well, I think there's also a conflict between the kind of therapist who will do really well in this system is not necessarily the therapist who makes you better. Exactly. It's the therapist who makes you feel good about go- coming to therapy and that you will revisit over and over again. Well, exactly. So one of the things that is, I think, if you're in private practice as a therapist or as an analyst, it's very tricky to find a way to both help people and get people to come back. Yeah. I mean, it's also like the dating apps. The dating apps do not want you to actually go and find the love of your life. They want you stuck on the app forever. Just like Facebook doesn't want you to, you know, not go anywhere else. It wants you to stay on the the app. Twitter wants you to stay on the app. I mean, this is, you know, you have a finite amount of attention and people are desperately competing for you to spend it all with them. And yeah, I guess the church is a bit of a loser. I was having a conversation with a rabbi yesterday, a friend of mine, and you know, he he's very interested in writing something about how becoming a rabbi has become less and less attractive for many Jewish people because it is seen as basically something that doesn't make money, that doesn't have a kind of use in a way that is, you know, something that is altruistic and is done as a vocation and is maybe involves lots of difficult community um, roles and is a position of responsibility. And yeah, they're, they're having a hard time. Like, and the same I'm sure is true. I definitely know that in Anglicanism, there are all of the, uh, there, there are very few people who are willing to devote their lives to, to religious service that people are not becoming nuns and monks in the same way, for example. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is this idea that priests and rabbis and imams are professionals for a different 
age for a different kind of society, right? They're the person, the expert that you go to for advice about some problem that seems to you to be beyond you. Yeah. So you go to the priest, you go to the rabbi, you go to the imam, you say, this is my problem. This is what's going on. What should I do? You get advice from this person. And in the Middle Ages, this was the most educated person around, the most educated person you could find who would have the most advanced knowledge of anybody in the community about all types of subjects. And really, you know, the priest would be the most expert person that you could find or expect to find. And insofar as all of the universities involved some kind of theological training, every educated or learned person was, if not a priest, you're not all that different from a priest. And now we have a society where different people are considered experts on the basis of a different kind of education, which is viewed as distinct from and separate from that kind of theological education. Mm. So when people want advice now, they go to a psychotherapist, or they go to a medical doctor, or they go to a, a, a bureaucrat or a civil servant or someone with, with a different kind of education. So if you become a rabbi or a priest or an imam, that set of people who would go to you if they have a problem in their life and think that you're the one who is most qualified to solve it, it's a much smaller share of the population than it used to be. The kind of person who becomes a priest in the Middle Ages is very similar to the kind of person who becomes a bureaucrat or a civil servant now. And that was partially why there was a loss of confidence over time in the priests mm. in the Middle Ages, because they had all of the pathological tendencies that professionals have now in terms of you know, acting like they're there to serve you, but often being there to serve themselves, getting off on being able to tell you what to do and get you to do what they thought you ought to do claiming that they had some kind of revealed truth that comes from an objective source, but is oftentimes skewed by their own human perspective and limitations, being dishonest about the extent of those limitations. All of these things eroded the legitimacy of, of priests and of religion as a body of knowledge. And the same thing now happens to scientists and civil servants and bureaucrats and, and managers. And we talk about all of these things, but if we ever did succeed in making some other kind of person the respected figure in the community, we would then have to deal with all the same tensions and problems with respect to that person or that type of person, mm. right? If you did restore the centrality of the position of the priest, then all of these people who currently become civil servants would go, I want influence, so I'm going to mm. be a priest, right? Yeah. And if we created some other kind of job that performed this role, that would then attract a lot of these same kinds of people who want power or influence, and they would all adopt that job. And then maybe- So the difficult yeah. thing is, how do you sustain this kind of profession in the face of this constant attempt by people who just want power or influence over others to appropriate that profession in their own interest and to steal valor from the discipline that the profession is, exists to espouse? Yes. I mean, there's a reason why we call like in the Middle Ages, like the people who worked in universities were basically clerks. And, you know, it's funny, it reminded me of like the PMC, but like now I'm thinking about the priestly managerial class as opposed to the professional managerial class. But yes, it is the same. It is the same kind of person. And in a way, I suppose, from a sort of romantic, melancholic point of view, it makes those people who do have religious vocations today, perhaps in a way more admirable, because... They, they clearly are not doing it for, for those reasons, for reasons of power and influence, but rather... Yeah, they have much <laughs> less social standing right. now than, 
than they would have done if they did it several hundred years ago. So, of course, they seem more compelling. And then we imagine that people a few hundred years ago doing that job were, were like them. But, of course, back then, when the job had status, the people doing it were much worse. Yes, no, I, I do understand. I mean, I, I asked, asked our priest a few weeks ago whether he was treated with respect when he wears his dog collar. So, you know, the Anglican sort of, you, you know, just have the black sort of thing with the the white dog collar but it's a very visible look right like if you saw someone in the street you'd be like oh there's a there's a vicar you know and uh, I was asking him whether people treated him he whether he thought uh, when he was like in mufti as it were like normal clothes or or wearing his priest outfit whether people treated him better and he said it's about half and half when he wears his priest outfit half the people are respectful uh, to him uh, on the basis he assumes of of his religious um, appearance, and but he said people are often very suspicious of me as well. So he said it was about fifty fifty. Like some people don't like the idea of the priest in a way, or the, the seeing a priest makes them feel something uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, I think their position today is a lot like that of school teachers, mm. insofar as school teachers. Some people become school teachers because they really love it and they're really good at it. And then some people become school teachers because they couldn't find any other profession that they could do. And because school teaching is relatively low status, low pay, it attracts both people who do it for its own sake, who do it really well and really wonderfully, and people who do it because it's a last resort professional career, which still in some way salvages the professional character of what they do. So some people who do it are really terrible and very bad at it, and other people who do it are really wonderful and very good at it. The kind of person who never shows up in that profession is the person who is doing it because it's a high status thing, because it's not. Yeah. And so if you improve pay and conditions or the level of respect accorded to teachers or accorded to priests, you will get rid of the people who are there as a last resort and you'll replace them with people who are there because of the status and the money. Yes. I mean, but I have a question, a deep question for you. I mean, I was tweeting idly as I tend to about, you know, like two types of people, right? People who are interested in truth and people who are interested in power, right? Maybe, maybe sometimes these people are the same people, but, but, but usually it seems that they're not. Um, and I, I do wonder about this thing about power. And, and of course, maybe I'm being, you know, um, disingenuous or maybe I'm being, you know, misled or misleading myself. But I do wonder when people want power or seem to seek power and like you say influence and what what is it that they actually what what do they think they're doing like what what is sort of good about wanting power over other people like I I feel like I don't want power over other people it's not like I don't want people to like me if I like them or it's not that I don't want respect of hopefully people that I respect or anything like that especially when it comes to close relationships but um, but that's a two-way thing, and I don't, I don't want more power over them than they have over me. If you sort of mean, like, I, you know, mutual respect seems to be about as equal as you could get. So I, I never understand this thing about some people wanting power. What do they want power for? Like, what are they going to do with it? And what is it? Well, I think that for a lot of people, power is instrumental to getting the thing that they're really after. So there are some people who are 
I'll, I'll do the platonic souls thing. You've got the bronze soul that's into pleasure and wealth. You've got the silver soul that's into honor status. And you've got the gold soul that is in pursuit of truth or the good, right? Mm-hmm. So someone who wants power might want power to help them get each of those individual distinct things. Though I do think there are some people who like control for its own sake mm-hmm. and who then try to rationalize their love of control for its own sake in reference to one of those things. But really, the thing they're after is control rather than the thing that they purport to be after. But, but control of oneself, you know, and this goes back to sort of questions of virtue and control and what, what you know, libertas is control over one's own desire rather than freedom in this general sense that we use it. We misuse it. But, but if you don't have control over yourself, like why I think there are people who don't have control over themselves who, who nevertheless want control over others. And that's, that's maybe the character type I don't understand. Well, I think this is an attempt to bridge the lack, an attempt to get unity with everything. If you controlled everything, if everything was an extension of you, then there would be unity and there would be no felt separation between oneself and the rest of the universe. So one way of dealing with lack is to try to make everything that exists an extension of oneself and thereby make oneself everything that exists. Yeah, that's sort of terrifying there, isn't it? That's like that scene in Being John Malkovich where everything is him. Yes, but also he is everything. So I think yeah. it, it, you can work both sides of that. Yeah. But, but then there would sort of be no difference and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to like anybody because we like people because they're different from us, don't we? Well, that's the, the issue with trying to get unity, with trying to return to, the, to God or the one from which you emanate or to get some kind of, of oneness, Right. There's an intrinsic threat to plurality involved in any attempt to get unity or oneness. And yet people do seem to be drawn in various ways to fill the lack and get that sense of unity or oneness. But just honestly. But if you were to ever succeed in getting it, it would diminish greatly the degree of plurality that exists. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there's clearly a, a, a tension within Christianity itself, which many people have argued is sort of culminated in liberalism. You know, if you like, liberalism is, is Christianity's necessary aftermath or, you know, follows because of Christianity's emphasis on universality and egalitarianism and a certain degree of. Um, you know, a sort of evangelical inclusivity, I suppose. And, and the fact that there is a notion of equality and when St. Paul talks about, you know, neither, you know, Jew nor Gentile, neither man nor woman, that, that there is something kind of um, potentially homogenizing about Christianity. But I, I think this isn't kind of quite what the, what is going on, which is to say, that, that everyone is different, but they are potentially sort of made the same through salvation. But it, it's not that there isn't empirical difference at the level of, you know, clearly male, female, age, race, you know, being alive, being dead. You know, clearly there's all kinds of ways in which we are different in practice. Um, but the way we can come to God is perhaps the same and that, that we will be judged by God equally, which is not to say that we are equal, but but sort of we will be, there is equality before God somehow, but we don't know what that is. Like we can't say what that looks like, I suppose. But then liberalism just gets rid of God. 
and then you have. <laughs> yeah, I think if we could accept something like many paths, one truth, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, the truth or, or God is a tree with many branches and there are many ways of accessing the universal, then we wouldn't get so caught up in all of this. The, the trouble is that we are not able to rest content with that kind of vision and we tend to concoct these, these meta-narratives which subordinate all of these different ways of accessing to one particular way of accessing. Uh, and the trouble is, is how do you get some kind of, of genuine plurality that's stable, that doesn't have this inherent tendency to try to coalesce around one particular thing to the exclusion of all other things. Uh, and at the same time, if you resist that by just valuing plurality in and of itself and you forget about what the plurality aims at, then it just spills out into endless agonism and conflict. Sure. And I, I mean... I think this is the question that bothered someone like Leotard a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you have to admit that liberalism is a clever solution or it's a clever attempted solution, you know, to try to keep open pluralism. I was just reading um, Yasha, uh, I don't know how you pronounce his surname, Monk or do you know who I mean? M-O-U-N-K. He has a new book um, called The Identity Trap, which I've just reviewed. And it's it's a serious defense of liberalism, basically, uh, against both uh, Marxism, but also against kind of wokeism or what he calls the identity synthesis, um, but also the kind of reactionary critique of work, right? So it's a serious defense of classical liberalism, basically, done in a very kind of, you know, sober and reasonable and I'd say compassionate way. Like he's not, it's not a polemic. He's not kind of attacking. He's trying to say, I understand why people might take up, let's say, critical race theory, or I understand why some people might demand certain things in a particular way because of history. Um, you know, so it's a sensitive and thoughtful book, but it does, it did strike me very much that one of his, you know, several of his claims, and indeed the claims of liberalism themselves, are self-eroding, which is to say the moment you say that, you know, it's up to individuals, I mean, even to assume individuals is already <laughs> an ontological leap, but to say you know, we're all equal before the law, but we all have the opportunity to decide for ourselves what meaning is and what morality is. Well, in a way that erodes the, the basis upon which you're making that that offer. And it, it can only hold for a short period of time. I mean, how long has liberalism lasted? You know, maybe 200 years in one form or another, 300, vaguely. Well, the thing I always like to say to classical liberals is, is just that classical liberalism is premised on the idea that the state can create a functioning civil society private space and that that civil society space will adequately socialize everybody, adequately mm. prepare everybody to be citizens and to participate. And the thing that classical liberals don't like to acknowledge is that capitalism inherently tends to kill the space for civil society and therefore to kill the socializing mechanisms that make people functional. It necessarily deconstructs all of that 
over time. Yeah. And so then you're left with some kind of gap, which then gets filled by something usually pernicious. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think it's, it is revealing that there isn't that much discussion of capitalism in, in, in Monk's book. It's not, you know, it's, He's trying. Yeah, liberalism always sounds more defensible if you can abstract it away from all of that stuff, the economic yeah. arrangements, the actual distribution of resources and time and, and the effects that that all has on the spaces in which people do discourse and the way in which people do discourse, the energy people have when they come to the discourse and participate in it. Uh, liberals never like to talk about all of that because they have no solutions to any of that. No, indeed. I mean, that's why I think maybe... But I haven't had a chance to read it properly yet, so I need to get my copy sent over from the States. But I think my colleague, Sara Bamari's new book, I don't know if you've had a look at his book, um, Tyranny, Inc., which is looking at forms of corporate coercion and, um, you know, perhaps in a way that's surprising to people who might understand Saurabh as simply a conservative Actually, I think what Saurabh is doing is a lot more serious left-wing in that or analysis that we would have associated with a left-wing perspective at least a few years ago. And I think there is this very interesting space opening up, which are people who are not free market liberals, whatever that means, not libertarians, not uh, they're not averse to trying to uh, think about how the state could be used uh, in ways that are genuinely uh, in in the name of the common good, that would put limits on capital, that would um, make life better for most people um, in a way that isn't insane and doesn't demand like revolution tomorrow or, you know, some kind of deranged utopia or whatever. Like, I think there is a kind of interesting shift Um and it's hard to say that they, these kind of analyses and proposals are straightforwardly left or right in the way that we would have normally or before understood them. So I think there's an interesting shift happening. And maybe your book is a bit like this too, actually. I've I've heard some stuff about his book. I want to check it out at some point. Mm. I know that uh, Chris Cutrone and his... Uh, discussion with Saurabh compared my book to his book. Ah. So it, Saurabh and I perhaps should talk about that at some point. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, no, maybe yeah, we could I'd be interested to do that. You know, I could read his book and he could read my book and we could talk about it. Yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah. I haven't, I haven't looked at it yet, but I'd like to. Yeah. 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 No, I think, yeah. I think you'd have, you two would have a very kind of high level, very, you know, important discussion. I know, I know from my own experience that like when you're being interviewed, which is always an honor, of course, like the fact that anyone spends any time at all reading your book and thinking about your work is always like a great, great, great honor. Um, but there is a, there is a, a range of, of ways people can do that. Right. Like, so sometimes people, won't read the book and they'll just ask you the questions that they think might come out of your book. <laughs> and other times people will read your book really seriously and, and, you know, really come up with things that you hadn't even thought about that are really amazing. And, you know, so, so there's a whole range, but I can imagine you and sorry, I'm having like a fantastic conversation that would actually be really, you know, really serious and really um, useful. Um, okay. So we're about an hour. So 
Yeah, we, we probably should wrap up. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go do the B-side for our Patreon listeners. And thank you again so much. And have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.